Well, if you have your copy of Scripture, go ahead and turn to the book of Genesis. We're beginning a new series here at the beginning of this new year, and we are looking at Genesis chapter 1. You'll find that on page 1. If you're using the church Bible, that should be explanatory enough to you. And as usual, I know you're going to find it helpful to have a copy of Scripture open and to be reading along with me, Genesis chapter 1. And this morning we're going to look just at the first five verses as we enter in on this series that will probably last us something about a year and a half, which may sound like a long time to you, but there are 50 chapters and there is a lot of theology to go over in the book of Genesis. Um, If you want to understand your Bibles, you've got to understand Genesis. If you want to understand your Bibles, you especially have to understand Genesis chapters 1 through 3. And so we're going to take probably about... 10 weeks to work through those first three chapters, and then don't quote me, but roughly a year and a half to work through the totality of this book. And I'm excited that we're going through this book. I think it's going to be richly beneficial to us as a congregation. And before we look at God's word this morning, let's again pray and ask for his blessing on the preaching of his word. Father in heaven, we thank you that you are the God who has created by the word of your power out of nothing, all things for your own honor and glory. And we pray that you would speak your word this morning and that you would create new life in us through the Lord Jesus. We pray that you, the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, would shine into our hearts this morning that we might know the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Our Father, we pray that we would know the power of the gospel as your word is preached. We pray that we would learn more of you and come to know you better and more intimately and that we would desire to live in communion and fellowship with you, our creator. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Genesis 1, beginning in verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void. And darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. Well, it is always a good practice when we enter in on a new book to ask the question, why was this book written and to whom was it written? What is the purpose of this book? What is the purpose of that opening section to which we are looking? And I think that that is uh, true of no book uh, more greatly than it is true of the book of Genesis, the opening words of God, the first words that God inscripturated for us in his special revelation of himself are these words, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It has been said that these words are some of the most important words that God has ever spoken. The God who is revealing himself to his creatures and is telling them about himself is the God that reveals himself first and foremost as the creator of all things, the creator of the heavens and the earth. But for us to understand better why he says this and to whom he says this, it's important for us to understand that the book of Genesis was written by Moses. It bears the title in the Greek uh, Genesis, and in the Hebrew it bears that title that carries with it the idea of the word beginning. It is the beginning of God's great works in time and space. It is the beginning in a very real sense of everything 
And God is giving this word to Israel. God is writing this in the context of Moses delivering the first five books of the Bible to the covenant people that God has redeemed out of Egypt. It's important for us to understand that God is not giving this revelation prior to his work that he gives to Israel. God is in a very real sense telling Israel who he is and where they came from and how all things are the way they are and that he is the true and the living God as over against all the gods of the nations that all of Israel's, um, all of the surrounding nations around Israel worshiped all the false gods. God is saying that he, Elohim, is the God who created the heavens and the earth. Now it's important for us to understand at the outset that God is not giving us Genesis chapter one to be a chapter on physiology or astronomy or geology. One of the mistakes that too many Christians make is they come to Genesis chapter one and they get into all kinds of scientific debates and discussions. Well, how could how could all these scientific theories that seem to go against the natural reading of Genesis one be right? And well, is the Bible scientifically accurate? And at at the foundation of why God gave Genesis is not to give you a science book. At the foundation of why God gave Israel the book of Genesis and why he gives us the book of Genesis is that God is wanting to reveal himself to us as the God who made all things because he is the God who redeems his people. And that in the work of creation, we are to find a theological parallel with the work of the new creation and redemption. And how are we to understand the work of resurrection and redemption and all that God promises to do through the Redeemer from Genesis 3.15 on through the rest of the Bible if we don't know the God who called all things out of nothing and who made this world by the word of his power? God is intent on revealing everything to us. Now, it's interesting that As we come to this book, the first thing that we see, and we're going to see this first this morning, is not the creation of the world itself in sequential days, God speaking each thing in in a chronological and progressive order, but the first thing that we're going to see is that God wants to reveal to us who he is as God and as the God of creation. Notice that he is telling us in Genesis 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God gives us a Bible because God wants us to know who he is. Eric Alexander has put it so well. The whole purpose of the Bible is to reveal God to us. Its subject and its object is the true and living God. We don't want to take one step forward without realizing that the whole purpose of the Bible is that God is revealing himself to us. Now, that's important. Because if God doesn't reveal himself to us, then we are, as fallen creatures, left to try to structure this world in our own fallen reason. And that's what most of the professors in the universities that you studied in are doing. That's what most of the philosophers have done throughout the history, throughout human history. They have looked around and they have said, we will structure the world in which we live. We will give it some sort of meaning. We will attempt to discern what it is, and we will do that in our own reason. We will not do that in light of the God who reveals. You know, man, man is always rushing to the expert. It's one of our great weaknesses is that we think if there is a collective pool of experts, that we will go to that collective pool of experts 
and in our reason and in our human autonomy, we will, we will submit ourselves to the experts. We will submit ourselves to the scientists and the philosophers from Harvard and Princeton and Yale. Let me say this this morning. Before Harvard and before Princeton and before Yale, there was God. And God must reveal himself to us. And that if we don't learn to look at the world around us in light of who God is and what he says here in these opening verses of the Bible, we will never be able to make sense of anything. I want to read to you something that greatly impacted me this past week. As um, one theologian meditated on these chapters, he says these chapters are chapters in which God prescribes for us lenses that enable us to function in the world, to understand the world, and not least of which to be faithful and indeed confident Christian witnesses in the world so that we can do, as Peter says, we can be ready to give an answer, a reason for the hope of the gospel that is in us. The very first verse of these chapters means that the simplest Christian has an answer to what some of the greatest philosophers have said is the basic question in all the world, and it is this. Why is it that there is something and not nothing? This is the question that plagued the philosopher Leibniz and Heidegger. The answer is this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That is, in the beginning, God created everything that there is. It is not an inexplicable accident. It is the design of a good and wonderfully kind and infinitely wise and amazingly loving God. Let me say this this morning. If you struggle with seeing the majesty and the glory of these words, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, then you will struggle to see the majesty and the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. You will struggle to see the majesty and the glory of the gospel. You will struggle. You will try in some sort of naturalistic way to, well, how could that be? And how could this be? And, and you will, you'll try to wrap your mind around what's going on. And you'll miss the God, the creator God, who gives you life and breath and all things, who made all things. And that phrase, the heavens and the earth, he is saying he made all things, is telling you, I am God. I have made you. I have formed you for myself. I have created the world in which you live. All the mysteries of the world around you can only be understood if you know me. My dad used to say to my sister and I as we were young children and we'd be watching Carl Sagan or one of the other evolutionary um, biologists who were uh, theorizing about um, whether we came out of some big bang or a black hole or, or how everything came into being and what life forms morphed into other life forms than my dad. And I was probably four or five years old, and my dad rightly, rightly because the Bible says this, would essentially say to my sister and I that, that, that the simplest Christian who receives the testimony of God in Scripture and receives the truth that God has created all things by the word of his power out of nothing, and that all things were made through him and for him, and everything else that the scripture says knows more than the greatest minds and the scientific academies that reject that. I want to ask you this morning, do you believe that? This is not fundamentalism. This is biblical truth. Unless God reveals himself, man can never and will never be able to structure reality. One of the things that I've often marveled at is when God is dealing with Job and you, you wonder why the Lord goes where he goes with Job in chapters 38 and onward. Job is perplexed about his sufferings. He is, 
He is grappling in his own soul with, with why he's going through what he's going through, and he's beginning to question God, and he's beginning to, he's beginning to doubt God. And the Lord comes to Job, and he says to him in Job 38, 4, Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? That's the greatest question God could ask you this morning. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? God is essentially saying that before the heavens and the earth, there was God. He was living in unbroken fellowship. The triune God was perfectly holy and happy in himself. He was delighting in himself. Jesus will tell us this. You know, the Apostle John will mirror this statement in John 1, and he'll say, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And, and the word that John uses is that the Word, who is Jesus, the Son of God, the second person of the Godhead, was face to face He was toward his father and that the Godhead was living in perfect, unbroken fellowship and he didn't need to create the world. He didn't need you and me. He didn't need to speak this world into existence. God needs nothing. He is the self-contained God. He is the everlasting God. No one created God. That is the most wonderful thought ever and yet it's a thought that men hate. They hate that. I've always thought it was interesting that the psalmist has to say, It is he who has made us and not we ourselves. That might be, to me, the most seemingly unnecessary verse in the Bible. It is he who made us and not we ourselves. And yet it is the very necessary verse God has to tell fallen man who suppresses the truth and unrighteousness, who hates the knowledge of God, I have made you. I uphold you. I give you breath. I give you life. I sustain all things. I have made you. You have not made yourself. Your parents didn't make you. They don't give you breath. They don't make your heart beat until it stops. Until God takes that breath. The God who made all things made them for himself. He made them to display his glory and his greatness. And he reveals himself to us so that we might know him. These opening chapters give us the subject and the object The living God, the triune God, notice that there's these intimations, these hints that God is telling us that the triune God is at work in the world. Notice in verse 1, God, Elohim, created the heavens and the earth. And and then verse 2, the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And then verse 3, God said, let there be light. It's for this reason that Christian theologians for centuries and and millennia have said that the triune God is there at work. Genesis 1, the Father is there decreeing and ordaining and commanding. The Spirit is there making it happen. The Word, the Lord Jesus is speaking it into existence so that when when we come to Colossians and we come to Ephesians, we read these verses. God created all things through Jesus Christ, Ephesians 3.9. And we read of the Lord Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. In Colossians 1.16, for by Christ, all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. And then that great word in John 1.3, that by him all things were made and that without him... Nothing was made that was made. I used to ask my dad as a boy, what was God doing before creation? And 
The answer is clear in the scriptures. He was delighting in his perfections. He was planning all that he would do and all the ways that he would show forth his glory and all of his marvelous works and all of his wisdom and all of his wonder so that when he creates and he culminates that creation in the creation of his image bearers, that they would know him and they would delight in him and they would praise him for all of his goodness and his love and his mercy and his overflowing bounty. You know, the first thing that God says to Adam and one of the first things is that I've given you of every tree of the garden to eat. God is not some harsh, servile master. I've given you everything. The psalmist says that he gave the earth to the sons of men. He wants his people to enjoy him in enjoying the bounty of his creation. God has created all things and reveals in the scripture himself to us that we might understand that its subject and its object is the living God. I want to say this this morning as a way of application. Two things. First of all, this is only received by faith. The writer of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews 11, by faith we believe that the worlds were framed by the word of God. The same faith by which we believe that the Lord Jesus died and rose again is the same faith by which we believe that God has created the worlds out of nothing. It is an attestation that God has given us saving faith that we take God at his word and we believe in the God of scripture and only the God of scripture and that we realize that he alone is the true and living God and that there is no other God and that we can only understand this world and see it through the spectacles and the lenses that he gives us in the scriptures and we put ourselves under that word and we receive the testimony of God and we love the testimony of God and we want to know him better and worship him better and give him more honor and glory for who he is and what he's done. And that's the purpose of God revealing himself in the opening chapters of scripture. But this purpose is developed secondly in the way in which God gives us the details about what he's done. Notice that not only is it created for his own glory, there's a theological significance to this. I think this is important for us. If you asked me, do you think Genesis 1 is history? I would say yes. Do you think that it's a history book? I would say no. Do you think that it's scientifically uh, accurate? I would say yes. If you ask me, is it a science book? I would say no. Is it history? Yes. Is it theology? Yes. Is the purpose for God merely to give us a history and to say, here's, how, here's what happened historically? No. God is always intent on giving us theology. He is always intent on building you up in the knowledge of him and the purpose of his will and helping you better understand his work in redemption. You know, one of the remarkable things about the Bible that ought to bolster your faith is that God gave all the different parts of Revelation and Scripture over 1,600 years, and, and Genesis and Revelation are bookends. And you find the same themes in Genesis that you find in Revelation. Before the sun, there's God. Genesis, before there's a sun, there's God. And he's light, and he brings about light. The book of Revelation closes with those great words that John said, I saw no sun or moon or stars in the, in the new heavens and the new earth, but the lamb was its light. God is there. God is its light. And in the opening chapters of Genesis, you have 
a garden paradise where God is dwelling with his people and he is revealing himself to them and having fellowship with them. And man falls and loses that and rejects that and brings sin and, and death and misery and judgment upon himself. And human history is replete with that until we hear the Lord Jesus on the cross saying to the thief, today you will be with me in paradise. And our minds are drawn back to the opening chapters. And how is God restoring paradise is the whole theme of the Bible until we come to the final chapters and in Revelation, we see that the tree of life is there on either side of the river and that a stream is flowing out from the throne of God and that God's people are satisfied and the nations are healed by the grace of the Lord Jesus and they are in paradise with him. And in Genesis 2, no sooner does God create woman that he brings about the glorious institution of marriage. And in that glorious institution, God is intimating what his plan and his purpose is. I, I mentioned that quote by Jonathan Edwards. In Sunday school, that God created the world that he might have a bride for his son. And Revelation, the scripture ends with the wedding of the lamb and the church prepared as a bride for the lamb. Just as there was a wedding at the beginning of creation. And so you see that God's purpose and intention is to bring about the new creation. God ordained the fall. He ordained everything that happens in time and in space. And one of the fascinating things... If I asked you this morning, if we took a little, a little test here in church, and I said, what's the first thing God created? I bet that most of you would say, well, light. It says, let there be light. That's the first thing. It's actually not the first thing. Time and space are the first things that God creates. The theologians say he created cum tempore, with time, in the beginning. There was no time. God is not subject to time. He creates with time and in time, and he creates finite space and matter. And as great and as vast as this universe may seem to, to us, and as much as the greatest scientific minds at NASA and throughout the world say that we don't know how vast the universe is, and some say it's expanding, and some say it's contracting, we know that it's finite. We know that there's a limitation, and we know that we are subject to limitation, and this is the really important thing. When God creates and he creates time, he subjects us to time. And our life is just a countdown. It's a sequential series of seconds and minutes and years until there's time no more. And the Apostle Paul tells us in Ephesians 4, redeem the time for the days are evil and God has created time in order to reveal his purposes. I had a mentor who used to say that um, when asked what is time, time is what keeps you from getting everything done at once. Time is what reminds you that you're not God. Time is what reminds you that God has a purpose. You know, I was thinking even about the fact that we celebrate New Year's and cycles and seasons. We have built into us something that takes us back to Genesis, and Genesis is the only thing that can explain the world in which we live and the life in which we live and the finiteness of our lives and the limitations and the failings and the brevity and the shortness. And yet behind that, God is working his purposes. And I've always loved this. The God who said in the beginning, when he created with time, is the God in Galatians who says in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son born of a woman, born under the law that he might redeem those 
who were under the law. So that in a very real sense, if you ask me, what's the purpose of time? The purpose of time is the Lord Jesus. Time was created for the Lord Jesus. The apostle tells us it was the fullness of time when God sent his son into the world. And God is bringing everything to a glorious fulfillment. One of the beautiful things about the book of Genesis is it's giving you God's progressive purposes. And he's saying to you, look at me. Look at what I'm doing. Look at how I'm working my plan out. Look how I'm working my purposes out. Because at the end of the day, it's not about your life and it's not about my life. The Bible is not about you and me. It's about God and what he's doing. Your life is just a tiny little nothing speck. In the grand scale of billions and billions and billions that God has created, and yet the all-powerful, infinite creator God is working his purposes out in time and space, and he is fulfilling all his desire for his own glory. He is showing us that he is going to move from creation to new creation. He gives us these intimations. Notice that maybe you've read that verse too and and were troubled over that. The earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters and God said, let there be light and there was light. Why? Why did God create a mass of unformed earth and darkness? Why did God create matter in seeming chaos? Because that's what the words intimate, that before he brought order to everything and before he structured it through those days of creation until the the, the seventh day when he rested from his labors, why did God do what he did in creating seeming chaos and then bringing order? And here's the reason, because that's what God always does. Our God is a God who brings order out of chaos, which is very good for us because our lives are chaotic and they are beset by darkness of sin. The Apostle John tells us in John 1, speaking of Jesus Christ as the light, he says, the light shone in darkness and the darkness did not overcome it. The Apostles find in creation all of the analogies for redemption. God is showing that he is a God who will bring light and blessing and order and goodness by his sovereign will for his glory. Notice what he says. He says, the earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters and God said, let there be light and there was light and God saw that light that it was good and God separated the light from the darkness God called the light day and the darkness he called night and there was evening and there was morning the first day. Now it's interesting when you talk about the purposes of God in creation and these first five verses are so packed with theological truths that the rest of the scriptures unpack for us. One of the questions that we ask besides what is time and why is there time and Why was there disorder and then there's order is the question, why evening and morning? Why evening and then morning? Why not morning and evening? We wake up in the morning, we work through the day, we go to bed in the evening, morning and evening, one day. Why evening and morning? And some scholars have said, well, this is just the Jewish division of time and, you know, it's it's just the way the Jews looked at things. Where do you think the Jews got the division of evening and morning? They got it from Genesis chapter 1. Now, why did God structure things? Why darkness first, then light? Why evening first, then morning? 
I love the way that R.A. Finlinson explains this. Why should it be evening to morning? It's not enough to say that this is a Jewish division in time. We have to get behind the Jewish division in time and ask how it came about that the Jew was taught to regard time as moving from evening to morning. Here it is. It was God's pattern of workmanship. He is always facing the light. His back is on the evening, his face is toward the waxing light and the rising sun. And if that was true in the natural creation, it is blessedly true in the spiritual creation. When God shines in our hearts with spiritual illumination, it is twilight within our souls. We see though we see but dimly. And that helps us to understand when we come into the New Testament that God is talking about the darkness that men are in spiritually by nature and that he is bringing the light of Christ into the world and that men see the light of life and that Malachi told us at the very end of the Old Testament as men are waiting for the redemption that God has promised, they're waiting for the light and the world is in darkness and the church is in darkness and the church is practicing every kind of wicked thing imaginable. Read the Old Testament this year. That's the church. Every kind of dark and wicked and idolatrous and base and filthy and rebellious practice in the church. And then God says, for you who fear my name, the the son of righteousness, the S-U-N, the son of righteousness will arise with healing in his wings. The Lord Jesus is the light of the world. He is God's light. The original creation was but a pattern for the work of redemption. God is intimating, remember, as I opened, that Genesis is not written before God's work of redemption with Israel. God is helping Israel to understand that the creator God is the God who is going to recreate, that only the God that creates can recreate. You know, I love that when... Uh, The Apostle Paul is searching for an illustration for the work of redemption to helping us understand what it is in 2 Corinthians 3. The only thing he can do is reach back to creation to find an adequate illustration for what has happened in the souls of the people of God. And he says it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The only way to understand what has happened in a regenerate heart is to go back to the original creation and see that God commands light to shine out of darkness. And God dispels the darkness. And God himself is the light. And God provides the light. And he continues to provide the light. And that it's like the sun rising, as Finlayson said, to its meridian splendor until God in consummate glory is the light forever. Samuel Rutherford captured this so well in the sands of time are sinking. The lamb is all the glory. The lamb is all the glory. The one who stood on the Mount of Transfiguration and whose face shone Like the sun, the emanating glory of God, the light and the grandeur and the beauty of the Lord Jesus, the lamb is all the glory in Emmanuel's land. I want to leave you with a couple thoughts this morning. The first is if you have struggled to accept Genesis 1 as both history and theology, that you would would turn to the Lord. God has clearly revealed himself. You don't need scientific theories and proofs. You don't need rational and logical proofs to assuage your mind and your reason. You need to receive the testimony of God by faith. It's by faith 
the writer of Hebrews says, we believe that the worlds were framed by the word of God. Let me say this to you this morning, because there are a lot of theologians, even in circles in which I run, and, and the fear is, well, we're going to be seen as fundamentalist. Have you seen what the church was treated like in the book of Acts? The world hated the church. The church was never deemed sophisticated. Sophistication and worldly acceptance and prominence and academia, none of that means anything to God. God has very clearly spoken and revealed himself. The only one who could reveal himself in an act that was supernatural and that was hidden from the sight of man, there's a sense, there's a very real sense in which it was a blessing that God hid his creation from the sight of man. There's a real sense in which we ought to be satisfied with the fact that God has revealed himself only in the scriptures and that even if he revealed it to man in all of the physics and all of the ways in which he accomplished his purposes, man would, would be undone. His mind would be stretched to the limits. God has told us that he, in the beginning, created the heavens and the earth and with that we ought to be satisfied. We ought to be satisfied. We ought to be satisfied. I want to say this this morning, that when we embrace the fact that the God of scriptures is the true and living God who has created us, we, we worship him. This stirs worship up. The goal of this is worship. It's not intellectual debate and discussion. It is that we would fall on our face and that we would say, it is you who has made us and not we ourselves. The goal of Genesis 1 is worship, that we would fall down and we would say, Lord, you are my creator. How dare I have taken to myself any of the properties that you alone contain in yourself. And then secondly, I'd encourage you to meditate on the fact that God is giving all of this to help you understand better that he is the redeemer and that he brings light out of darkness and that he dispels the darkness of our hearts and our minds and he transfers us from the kingdom of Satan into the kingdom of the son of his love from the power of darkness, Paul says, into the glorious light of the Lord Jesus. There is, I'll say this in closing, there is no greater thing that you can study than the great works of God in creation and redemption. They are the greatest works that God does in the world. No empires, no regimes, no accomplishments, no revolutions, no battles, no inventions. All of that pales in comparison to the great work that God does in the world. God, the almighty God, made the trees. He made the heavens and the earth. He made you. He doesn't need you to prove him to anybody. He wants you to worship him. He doesn't need you to add anything to him. He wants you to worship him. He wants you to trust in him. The triune God who made all things out of nothing wants you to believe in him through the saving work that he accomplishes at the cross. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear this morning what the Spirit says to the church. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would give us much grace to receive the testimony that you have revealed to us in Scripture. We are grateful that you have told us not only where we have come from, but who you are. You have revealed yourself, and we bless you, and we thank you that you are the God who has made us and not we ourselves. We thank you that your face is ever toward the light, and you're back to the darkness. We thank you that you are accomplishing your purposes in time and space. We thank you that you are accomplishing your purposes in our lives. We thank you that you have shown the light of the gospel into our hearts to dispel the darkness of our sin and rebellion. 
We pray that you would do that afresh for us this morning. We pray that we would know more of the light of the Lord Jesus. We pray more, we would know more of his creative glory and his redeeming glory. We pray, our Father, that we would know more of his grace and his mercy and your goodness and your wisdom and your power. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.